Well, good morning, Forest View. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Nat Evans, and I'm the lead pastor here at Forest View. We are well on our way in a series simply titled, Now What? A few weeks ago, I spoke about what it means to be in liminal spaces, transition spaces in our lives. Maybe it's a specific location, or maybe it's a, it's a time or it's, a, it's an experience that you're walking through. It's a time of transition, a time where you don't quite feel at home, and there's just awareness that something else is coming, that this time and this place is not permanent. I've actually been experiencing that in a very significant way this past week. My wife and I, our family, we put our house on the market. It's up for sale, and so we are hoping to get some offers soon. And uh, one of the things that's been interesting about this experience is that we've gone and we've staged our house to look really, really beautiful. And they, the, the stager and my wife, they have done an incredible job. It looks great. And over the course of this past week, we have moved out of our house, or at least my wife and my kids, they've moved out of our house. They're living with, uh, with relatives right now because they've had to quarantine and do COVID tests and all that kind of stuff uh, because there are people coming in and out of our house all throughout the day, coming in, checking it out, looking at it. And my responsibility throughout this week has been to go home at night and to go and make sure I turn off all the lights, to sweep to clean up, to make sure everything looks as pristine as it did before. And then in the mornings, I get up and I do my very best to get ready for the day and to go and to leave and to go to work. But there's this interesting experience where I am doing my very best to make it look like I have not been there. I wipe down the tub, make sure there's no drips of water and, uh, when I've taken my shower, make sure there's no dishes in the sink, uh, make sure that the floor has been sweeped, I haven't left any hair or anything like that that's around on the floor. I've done my very best to do that. And I'm even sleeping on the couch right now because our bed is so beautifully made, I don't want to do anything to mess up all the beautiful pillows and the nice way it's all set up. And so as I, even as I'm in our home at night, I have this feeling of like there's a transition coming that this is not really where home is for me right now. I can't just relax and feel comfortable here. I think we're all walking through that right now as we, uh, as we experience this pandemic and the return to lockdown and just the uncertainty about the future. And as we kind of look and we know that this is not how life is supposed to look and hopefully will not look uh, a year from now, definitely, uh, definitely not a year from now, but, but months from now, we're hoping that we're going to be able to return or, or maybe to go and transition to a different kind of life, one where we're able to be present with each other, one where we're able to go and get haircuts, all those different things that we took for granted. And for us as a church, we want to really seriously wrestle with this question, now what? Because with these times, there comes an opportunity to reevaluate who we are and what is important to us. What do we want our new normal to look like? And as we do this, as we wrestle with this now what question, we've been going to the book of Acts, and we've been looking at the first Christians, because Christians of all the people throughout history and in the world, they should actually be the best at navigating liminal spaces and times, uh, because the very birth, the inception of Christianity 
flows out of asking that now what question as people who have responded to the resurrection of Jesus and yet are waiting for his return in the world. And the core text for our series that we've been looking at, and uh, last week, Elizabeth and Paul did a great job uh, pulling apart for us and and helping us look at it in different ways, uh, is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And in it, we hear the response of those first Christians, those first Jesus followers, to the now what question of Jesus is alive, he is risen, now what? and how it worked itself out in their community. So let me read to you this text. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Now, before, uh, instead of unpacking this morning any specific words or parts in this particular text, I want to zoom out a little bit or maybe move back a little bit in the text and look at some things that are just implicit in this text that we're reading about these Jesus followers and the community, what it was that had brought them together and why they felt it was so important to gather and to live together and to share their lives with one another in this particular way. So again, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you, we're going to go a little bit to the left, go back to the very beginning of the book of Acts. I want to start with reading Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so the book of Acts begins. It's a letter written to a person to let them know about this movement the stirring of God, of Jesus in the hearts of these people and what he was leading them and calling them to do and to be. And so Luke, in his writing of Acts, he begins to describe what it was the experience of the apostles, the disciples, as they were walking with Jesus in those 40 days and how Jesus took that time to explain to them this thing that Jesus had been constantly talking about throughout his ministry called the kingdom of God. This was this anticipated, desired thing that all of the people of Israel were longing for and waiting for, to see God, the Yahweh, the the creator of the universe, to, to come and to establish his rule and reign, to make all the things in the world that are out of sync with his heart. To, to drive, to, to rid the world of those things, and to replace it with his presence and his rule and reign. And so Jesus, he's taking this time to explain what this means and looks like to his disciples. Now skip a little bit ahead to verse 6. 
Then they gathered around him, the disciples, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so their question is, is, God, is this going to happen now that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel the way it was supposed to be? And they're, they're hearkening back, they're looking back to the good years in Israel's history when there was a king on the throne and the, all the other countries would come around to come and see them and seek out their wisdom and their guidance. They were looked to, they were not under threat, and they were able to live and to reign the way that they believed that they were called to live and reign. And so the, implicit within this question of Jesus' followers is, hey, Jesus, when are things going to go back to the way they used to be? When are the things that we really care about, Israel, when are we going to see that back to how it was supposed to be? Now, Jesus' response is fascinating. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to, on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So essentially, the, the, Jesus' followers, they've asked, hey, when are you going to reestablish Israel? Right? When are you going to return it to its place of glory? When is this all going to happen? When are we going to see this kingdom happen? And Jesus responds, first off, if you're looking for times and dates, that's not interesting. He says, that's not what I'm here to tell you and to teach you about. I'm not giving you an end date in sight. Instead, he says, you know, this is what you are called to do, who you are called to be. Jesus uses this word witnesses, and implicit within that is this calling, this invitation to go and to show what his rule and reign looks like throughout the world. The hope is, is that as they go out and they begin to live out and embody and to proclaim this good news about Jesus, about his triumph over death through the resurrection and through the way of life that he lived and embodied this sacrificial love, this pouring out of himself for others, that people would catch a glimpse of who Jesus truly is. And so his challenge to them, his invitation to them is, no, no, wait a minute. Don't worry about figuring out when the end is going to be. Instead, worry about figuring out the kind of people you are to be. Your calling, your mission, who you are supposed to be and who you are pointing to, which is Jesus. And then he gives this interesting end off to their question. They ask, hey, when are you going to return the kingdom to Israel when are you going to make Israel what it was supposed to be? And, and his response is, I'm going to send you as my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea. And then he changes things up. He says, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus' disciples, they are all Jewish. They're, they were raised following Torah They've been raised traveling to Jerusalem and to go and to offer sacrifices at the temple. They are committed to this religious faith, to this cultural group of people. They eat like Jewish people. They, they live like Jewish people. And they care about Jewish people. 
But the interesting thing that Jesus does, he says, realize that this mission is to the people you care about. So you're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea. But then Jesus throws in two other names. He says, then you're going to go to Samaria and you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And so Samaria, just quick, quick summary. Samaria is a country nearby Israel. It, it was a place where um, essentially people who were part Jewish and part pagan had come together and uh, there was this deep-seated rivalry is not really the right word, hatred between both the Jewish people and the Samarians. This is why maybe you're familiar with a, a story that Jesus told called the, the parable of the good Samaritan. And it talks about this, this Samaritan coming and helping a man who had been hurt and beaten up on the side of the road. And this story was radical because Jesus' original audience despised the Samaritans. There was talk that the Samaritans would sometimes sneak into the temple and leave bones of dead animals in the temple dirt in an attempt to desecrate the temple. There was this deep-seated hatred between these two groups. And Jesus' invitation, actually not even his calling, his, he, the, the vocation he places on his disciples to say, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go to Judea, and you're going to go to Samaria and be my witnesses there. And you're going to go throughout the entire world. Now, when it says the entire world, it is saying to all of these other places ruled by pagans, different cultures, different people, people who have different beliefs than you and speak different languages than you and come from different, uh, just different expectations about what life is supposed to look like, you're going to go to them too. And so at the very heart, Jesus is challenging their boundaries for where God's kingdom is supposed to go. I mean, for them, they're saying, oh, it's, it's our people group. It's people that look like us, talk like us, eat like us, live like us, believe like us, like the things that we like. And Jesus is saying, he's constantly moving them out and saying, no, this is about more than just you and the people who are like you and the people that you like. There's this movement and push to say, no, no, wait a minute. This is a kingdom that all are invited into to know and to experience. Skip ahead to Acts chapter 2. This is a story we often refer to, we call it Pentecost. And so this is, uh, let me just read it here, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there was staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? 
Now, this story is incredibly interesting for a whole bunch of different reasons. There's this coming of the Spirit on God's people that's empowering them and giving them strength to go out and proclaim His message and do amazing things in His name. But then there's this other thing that is incredibly interesting that we see happening within this story. Uh, in, In the ancient world, one of the most significant things that would divide people into different groups would be the language that they speak. And there's all sorts of chaos and confusion that different languages bring, right? There's things that get lost in translation. In fact, there are many biblical scholars who actually think that this is hearkening back to a story that you find in Genesis chapter 11, often referred to as the story of the Tower of Babel. A story in which the, the, the people have figured out a way, they, they've, they've been developed a new technology and they're building these towers and they are convinced that they can build a tower that will reach God. And the calling that Jesus or God has placed on their lives is, no, no, you are supposed to go out and spread out into the world and yet they've all congregated in one place and they're all working together to build this tower to achieve essentially a controlled relationship with God. And so God creates new languages and suddenly everyone starts to speak differently and there's chaos and confusion and everyone goes their separate ways. And so language can create this barrier between people because you don't understand one another. I can tell you about multiple experiences I've had leading mission trips Uh, with students in foreign countries where they speak a different language and and some of the challenges that come as you're trying to navigate different situations with when you're both, you are speaking a different language to someone else. It can make things very difficult. And yet here's the fascinating thing that we see as God's spirit comes upon his people is that the very thing, the differences that that would separate and cause conflict and division, the very things that would do that when God's Spirit is at work, there is an incredible unity that can happen even in the midst of those differences. There's a term we use a lot in our culture today. We call it diversity we talk about diversity a lot as something we want to celebrate, and, and there's great things and wonderful things about diversity, but I would argue that in our culture, we love some things that make us diverse and different, and yet there are other things about that make us different and diverse, and it's like, no, 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 let's not talk about that. Let's ignore that. Let's push that down. Don't share that perspective. Don't share that opinion. And so while at the forefront of the conversation within our culture is often around racial diversity, and that's something that we want to celebrate, we think that's a great thing that we are talking about that as a culture and and wrestling with that, Uh, there are other differences that we see within our culture which are not getting any conversation. In fact, there are people being shut down and shut out. And as we uh, realize the differences that we have with other people, often what will happen is we move to our silos or to our groups of people. And so the people who think like us or, 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 or watch the same things as us or read the same newspapers or watch the same news programs as us or visit the same websites or follow the same people on social media, and we find ourselves gathering and congregating with them. And what so often happens is these groups keep moving further and further apart. So so when we talk about the diversity in our society, yes, there's beautiful things happening as we confront questions around racial diversity, and yet there there are some things that you just look at and go, wait a minute, we aren't even able to talk to each other when we think about things like maybe politics 
or, or, or belief or preferences around or beliefs, convictions about what a good life looks like. As we begin to move into whatever is the season that's going to come after this lockdown, there are two things that I think are embodied in these first Christian communities as they navigated the diversity that was present within them. Because for them, diversity was not an end goal, but rather was something that flowed out of their deep conviction to follow Jesus and to live out his rule and reign together. And so two important words that I think are necessary for us, because uh, as we move forward as a church, we want to be a church that is a beautiful expression of diversity, of, of the spirit that speaks to in different languages and yet is still united. And so for us, we talk about diversity. There's two words that are important to us in terms of how we as a community want to live out diversity here. Intimacy and proximity. Those are the two words, intimacy and proximity. Now, the first part in terms of as we navigate diversity, as we walk through life with people who are different from us, we want to be intimate in terms of opening our lives up to one another and sharing it with one another. As I spoke about before, we see in our culture today this hyperpolarization as we move towards people who are like us, who think like us, look like us, vote like us, believe like us. And yet the thing that we are invited to do as Christians to all who call Jesus Lord and Savior is instead to open up our lives to one another, realizing that there are differences at play and yet saying, hey, we want to share our lives with you. That means having tough and difficult conversations sometimes. That means acknowledging the differences that are between us, our outlook, our view, or the way that we do things. And yet at the same time, it invites us to say, no, no, we are choosing to open up our lives to one another. The second word that I think is incredibly important for us as a community is the word proximity. Now, we are currently in a particular stage of life right now with COVID lockdowns. We cannot be close to one another. In fact, I would argue one of the greatest tolls that this pandemic has taken on us is the way that it has forced us to be distant from one another. Uh, even as I walk down the street going for a walk or somewhere or walking with my kids and someone else is coming the other way and there's this immediate instinct, we, we or the other person, to, to move as far away from that other person as we possibly can. And one of the things that can happen is, is that when you are in a context where you are not practicing proximity, where, where you are not present with other people, is that we can become much more selective in terms of what that intimacy with that other person looks like. I would actually argue that selective intimacy is both what makes so much of our social media and online life both incredibly appealing, but also incredibly dangerous. Because we get an aspect of relationship, an aspect of openness and connection with another person, but at the moment it becomes challenging or difficult, that person says something that we don't like, or we realize that that person believes something that's like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. We can block them or ignore them, and we don't actually have to interact with them and work through the differences that are present between the two of us. Moving forward as a church, 
as we are, once we are able to, uh, we are committed to gathering together again. I mean, the, the live stream is going to probably still happen to some degree, but, but for us, the, the priority is to say, you know, we need to be in a building together. This is not about just some content that we can beam out to your homes and you can watch because the point of our gathering together is not simply about downloading information. It's about opening up our lives to one another and specifically forcing us to open up our lives to other people who are different from us and discovering the unity that comes through the Spirit. Acts chapter 15, the, uh, I'm just going to read a portion of this for you. Uh, we see that the first Christians, who were all predominantly Jewish, They've been going around proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and there are Gentiles, these people who are raised as pagans, who hear the good news and say, I want in, and God sends his spirit on them, and they start to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus too. And so the first Christians, these Jewish, predominantly Jewish men, are wrestling with this, like, what do we do with this? Because do they need to become Jewish? Do they need to go and obey all the kosher laws? Do they, well, like, what do we need to do for that? And so this is kind of the debate that's, that's welling up within the first Christians, and it's messy and muddy, and there's arguments and divisions and debates. But, but ultimately, this is where they land. Acts chapter 15 says this. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel, and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are saved. And so right there in this message is that this is a community. This is a community that is going to be united by God's spirit and by God's grace. And it's so important that we realize that because if we are going to be the family of God together, if we're going to do this thing called church, if we're going to live out this mission in all of the diversity that God desires for it to be lived out, it is going to take all sorts of grace. Recently, I uh, came across a, um, there's a online, she's a movie critic and a writer and an author, and uh, she recently, she put out a tweet um, talking about some movies, and essentially the response was all these different people online were saying that that tweet is racist, and you're a terrible person, and we're attempting to use the term we call cancel her, essentially make her go away. And so she responded with this YouTube video, essentially decrying uh, with, with all this anger and frustration about these people who are seeking to try to destroy her career and her platform. And there's some really good points that she makes throughout this video that she posted online. But there was this one thing that she said that really stood out to me. She expressed her anger, and she said this to her accusers, to the people who are trying to cancel her. She said, you do not deserve grace. You do not deserve sympathy. And all I could immediately think was that is such a sad way to live. 
Because first off, we all need grace. We all need grace. Being a part of a church means that we are going to have to extend forgiveness and grace over and over and over again. I mean, that's why we are a part of the church. We have been extended grace and forgiveness to, through Jesus that saves us from our sins and has given us new life in God and given us the promise and the hope of resurrection and has made us a part of a people we would not be able to be made a part of otherwise. But the reality of is, is that as we live lives that are intimate, as we live lives of intimacy and proximity, as our lives are close together and open with one another, we are going to offend one another. We are going to hurt one another. Now, sometimes that offense comes out of our own selfishness and sin. Sometimes it comes out of our ignorance of us saying the wrong thing or acting in a way that is insensitive. And sometimes that offense is going to come out of our love as we speak hard truths to one another. But at the very heart of it is this idea of grace and forgiveness. And to be a part of the people of God means we need to forgive each other and be ready to forgive one another. I immediately think of a quote from Henry Nouwen, uh, this famous priest and writer, where he just said, to be a part of a church means to forgive people over and over and over again. I mean, how's that for an ad campaign? <laughs> Come to Forest View, a church where you're going to have to forgive people over and over and over again. And yet that is so true to the heart about what it means to be the church, that we are people who live lives of intimacy and proximity, and when that hurts, when our differences grade up against one another, that we speak the truth to one another and we forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. When I was a lot younger, I had this phase where I was really into collecting rocks. And so I'd go out and I'd pick up rocks and I'd bring them. And I remember this experience, like, you know, get some quartz or whatever and keep them in jars or, or cups or whatever in my bedroom or bowls in my bedroom. And I'd, get, you know, just finding all these rocks. And then I remember it'd be, there'd be experiences where I'd go into a store and, and usually like touristy kind of shops or wherever. And you'd see these rocks that are like beautiful and shiny and smooth. And I would hold those stones in my hand. And maybe sometimes I'd be allowed to buy one and bring one home. And I'd hold the rocks that I was finding outside and be like, wait a minute, what's going on? Because this rock is all jagged and, and, and rough and, and that this rock is shiny and smooth and beautiful. And so I remember going and talking to my dad, hey, what, what's, how does this rock get like this? Like, how do I get my rocks? How do I find these rocks? And, uh, and so he said, well, here's, here's what you need to know. You need to get a rock tumbler for that. And so I remember learning about what a rock tumbler is. That for those of you who are unfamiliar, you should have an image of that. Uh, a rock tumbler is essentially there's this machine and there's this uh, cylinder that you place rocks inside and it spins around and it begins to make the rock smoother and shinier. Now, here's the thing. It is not necessarily just the machine that makes the rocks round and smooth and beautiful. In fact, they have, it, you can get a machine, you can put a rock in it, and it won't do anything. The trick is, is all the other rocks that are put into the machine as well. And you put the rocks in, you put the grit in, and as the, the machine begins to turn and spin, these hard, jagged 
rocks, they all begin to rub up against each other, grind up against each other, and then they become beautiful and smooth and round. The jagged, pointy edges are worn down, and you begin to see this other beautiful stone underneath. I can't help but think, what a perfect image for what the church is like. Community of people, all with our jagged edges, all with our our brokenness and our hurt, all of our anger and frustration and our views about how the world is supposed to be, and yet through God's Spirit have been called and made a part of this mission, His mission in the world. And as we live life together in intimacy and proximity, as we open our lives up to one another, as we open up our homes to one another, the the jagged edges, they they begin to get worn down and we begin to find this beautiful stone underneath that somehow as we share our lives together, we become more like Jesus. We're going to transition to time of communion in just a second. Uh, But before we do that, I simply want to simply ask this question. Have you retreated to the silos where you're just with people who are just like you? Where do you encounter diversity in your life? Where are there relationships in your life that you have abandoned proximity, proximity and intimacy because you go, ah, I don't really want to share my life with that person? And the invitation here is to say, as we begin to step into whatever this next stage post-lockdown, post-pandemic looks like, Are you living a life of intimacy and proximity to other believers to help you grow and become more like Jesus? My hope and my prayer that our community, that that as we are able to gather together in this space and to be able to share communion together in this space as we approach the communion table, that our kitchen tables, our living room tables, would also begin to look, share, and reflect the same diversity, a room full of different people being united by God's 